0: Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network and the Blue Wire Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible podcasts like My First Million. My First Million is hosted by Sam Parr and Sean Purry. They feature famous guests, they discuss how companies made their first million and then some. They brainstorm new business ideas based on the hottest trends and opportunities in the marketplace. Here are some of the topics they to talk about. If you like any of these, you will love the show. Three profitable business ideas that you should start in 2022. Drunk business ideas that could make you millions. Asking the founder of Grammarly how he built a $13 billion company or SaaS companies that anybody can start. If these topics are up your alley, go check out My First Million. Listen to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Today my guest is Andy Paul. He is a sales professional with more than 30 years experience as a VP sales sales executive in multiple companies ranging from Fortune 1000 to to technology startups as a founder and principal of the sales action group. He's consulted with numerous CEOs to help them optimize and modernize their sales process. He is also the host of Accelerate Your Sales. It is the number one sales podcast with over 2 million downloads to date. He's the author of Zero Time Selling and Amp Up Your Sales. They're both Amazon bestsellers. He's the author of the upcoming novel Sell Without Selling Out. He is a top sales influencer. He has 200,000 followers, uh, number one sales podcast, number eight on LinkedIn's list of top 50 global sales experts to follow. Needless to say, he has some opinions about sales. So what do we speak about? So we spoke about some of the concepts in his upcoming novel, uh, upcoming book, Sell Without Selling Out. We spoke about how sales hasn't really progressed that much in the past 30 years from the days of ABC, Always Be Closing. What has gone wrong? Why are sales reps not more potentially ethical or not as productive as they should be in a modern sales environment? We spoke about what selling out means, uh, listening to the old sales dogma and why it won't move the needle on sales. It won't help you if you're a sales manager, a traditional sales rep, or an entrepreneur. Uh, We spoke about the issue with persuasion. It's a blunt instrument. It's a last resort instrument that sellers use when they don't know how to influence properly. And then we spoke about what sellers should be doing in a modern sales environment. So how to sell in and not sell out, how to focus on connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity, uh, how to be a top performer, how to focus on being productive in a sales environment, how to make sure that you're still meeting and exceeding all your numbers, all your revenue, without uh, creating a really poor buyer's experience. So this is a masterclass on the future, uh, future of sales. It should be what sales is, but it, the future of sales, where sales should go, and what a sales organization, sales process, and sales experience should feel like. So this, again, this is Andy Paul. He is the author of Selling Without Selling Out.
1: Yeah, my first sales job was selling women's shoes at J.C. Penney's as a high schooler. So that was, that was a stark introduction to sales. <laughs> and I mean, I was in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was, I was a, a holiday fill in. And so my first day on the job uh, in late November is the first major snowstorm of the season moved in, moved in. And, and this was the sign for every woman within 30 miles to come to JCPenney and buy their winter boots. So literally the first day I was I forget how many people dozens and dozens of customers that I was serving. And I knew how to do the foot measuring device and, and so on. but uh, yeah, as a 16 year old boy who was, <laughs> was thrown at the deep end of uh, touching women's legs and feet to help them into the boots. it was sort of an interesting day.
0: <laughs> that was the first that was the first uh, that was your first sales gig that was your first, that was your first job. Was that your first job?
1: Uh, first sales gig. No, I, I was uh, a lifeguard and swimming coach and so on during the summer. Um, all right.
0: So, what what made you uh, eventually go down this career path of sales? <sighs> just fell into it, like many people.
1: Yeah, as I said Graduate from college. I did. I literally had no no job plans at all when I graduated. graduated from college. Yeah, I spent the summer working at the university. I went to school and. Sort of got to the point where they offered me a full time job. I thought, nah, I don't want to work here. So I went over to the Career Placement Center and there were jobs from all these big, at the time, big tech companies, IBM, Xerox, Burroughs, which is the second largest computer company, HP, and so on. And I said, so what the heck? You know, I'll... Of course, they didn't call them sales jobs. That was the thing that was interesting. They were all marketing management training programs. So they very, very carefully, didn't mention anything about sales. And it wasn't until I really sort of got into the interview process that I thought, Oh yeah, this is really a sales job. Oh, well let's try it. <laughs> I had Nothing else going on at the time.
0: Um, what was when you walked into these marketing management training programs, what was sales? What was sales then? Because I'm going to showcase that sure. dichotomy and the absolute difference in, in what sales is now.
1: Well, so for us in the company I worked for at the beginning it was about cold calling and so we had to sort of serve an apprenticeship where we sold uh, at the time the company was Burroughs, there was a big mainframe computer manufacturer and and so on, As everybody had to start off by selling They had these legacy products that were these desktop adding machines about the size of small microwave ovens and they were hugely overpriced for the time because they were selling for say roughly $300 a a unit and you could go to your local office supply store and buy a handheld calculator for, you know, 50 bucks or 60 bucks at the time. So we had to go out and sell a certain amount of that product, like $5,000 worth uh, before we could get approved to go get trained to sell computer systems. So we got a little bit of sales, two weeks of sales training and the throne on the streets and just prospected. So as in the Bay area, I was based in Oakland. I'd drive to the East Bay area. I'd drive to uh Fremont, Union City, Hayward, somewhere. I'd park in a business park. I'd get out, lock the car, and with a desktop batting machine under one arm and my flip chart portfolio under the other, I'd go cold call.
0: 20, 30, 40, 50 cold calls a day. And how were you trained originally on how to close a deal when you did this cold calling?
1: well yeah it's the it's something i deal with in my new book is i know so i've did. been on the job about <laughs> about uh, a week or two we got sent to the one of our national training centers in this case is in pasadena california and two weeks of sales training and uh, a lot of it consisted of watching a series of, of videos uh, put on by this I'm a slick-haired con man sales trainer um guy named Lee a boy that maybe some people still hear of uh, it just sort of made my screen skin crawl watching him and then we yeah, had endless sort of role plays and some product product knowledge training but a lot of role playing a lot of watching lead a boy uh, sort of bluster his way through objections and and so on and it, yeah I, I did not identify with that at all. (laughs) And it it made me think, huh. Not sure this is for me because, you know, everybody was trying so hard to be salesy, right? I mean this is everybody in the was like, you know, you had to put on a a hat and a costume and be like a used car salesperson. And uh, that just wasn't me. Uh, and apparently the instructors of the class thought so as well because they told my manager after the fact that they thought I should be fired because I wasn't salesy enough. I was too analytical. But it just sort of gave me the determination to say, well, there's got to be a way to do this, you know, to make sales work for me. And it was really almost from the beginning that I sort of determined that, yeah, I'd find a path that that worked for me, that would enable me to succeed in this profession, even though it was just something I alone did.
0: Why would you want to, because I feel like your current uh, version of sales and what you do speak about in your book, and we'll get into that later, mm-hmm. but that version of sales is more a modern way of looking at sales. It's a much more modern lens of what sales is. What What's curious to me is why you went against the grain when sales, uh, I, I don't want to put a timestamp on it, and God forbid, I don't <laughs> want to date you at all, but like X years ago was right. a very much of a cold calling ABC um, used car salesman. All the negative stereotypes that you uh, associate with sales, a lot of that came from a certain culture that's evolved and progressed and become a lot better. Um, well, but how but did that's you question is, is Has happened. it? Has it become? Has it become that's another question? Yeah, I, I would argue but,
1: it hasn't. And so I would make the case really I do make the case in my book is that that. Yeah, I think that that actually it's become worse, I think we went I think that that you know, the sort of over-reliance on, on process and technology, in an effort by many in sales, don't want to sort of take the human out of the equation, has, has sort of amplified these bad behaviors. You know, the, the pitch first, uh, listen to, to respond rather than listen to understand, you know, just the lack of, of any sort of making connection with another human being – Understanding that your job is to be there to help, under make the buyer help the buyer understand what's most important to them, as opposed to just pitching and flogging your product. To me, the the underlying behaviors are the same. And in fact, I think we've amplified the impact of it with technology. And I th- and I think that that on top of that is you know when we look at what's considered our sort of modern sales processes. Is it's we as long as we still have these these linear stage based processes that we have and that are embedded in CRM systems and you know, people's processes, they haven't changed for decades. They're the same fundamental sales process, initial, initial call, initial qualification, demo, <laughs> presentation, proposal, whatever the order is. If you Google it, yeah, you know, the modern sales process, same one I was taught decades ago. Now we've got ways to facilitate it. <clears throat> Excuse me. That, that didn't exist before. But one of the things I find fascinating, and this is not something that a lot of research has been done in, but I think needs to be looked at, is, is I firmly believe that the sort of base unit, base level productivity of an individual seller today, despite the technology, is no greater than it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And by productivity, what I mean is, I define it a specific way, which is the, the, the amount of revenue generated per hour of actual sales time. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's no data that exists to tell us that it's gotten better. And so, so if, we no, proxies, if we look at the proxies, if we look at the proxies, like you know, knowledge worker productivity increases and so on, is what we see. And Paul Krugman has written about this several times in the New York Times, this is uh Yeah, we saw improvements through the advent of email and high-speed internet, but in the last 20 years, the level of productivity increase among knowledge workers has basically been kind of flat. So we have to assume the same is true with
0: sales. But we are talking about, so that's an interesting, very interesting point, but productivity versus ethical or customer-focused Um, sales are, those are two very different conversations. Oh, sure. So with the increase in, in technology, you could argue that you could be ruthless and you could be persuasive and you could be guiding somebody down the sales cycle, but just doing it more efficiently. Alternatively, the other conversation could be, well, okay. Productivity is one thing, but how do we sell better? How do we be more ethical salespeople? Because your argument stands that we haven't become that much better. In the past 20 to 30 years and that's interesting to me because i do you you cannot be denied that the sales cycle you know you, you do your you know you top a funnel you do your discovery and then you mm. sort of get them through all the way through to negotiate you know proposal negotiation close all the different steps in the sales cycle um yes yeah, so that, that it's an easy way to teach over sales what i want your opinion on is mm-hmm. whether or not you feel as though there's more of there's more of a an intent focus or almost like an empathetic approach to which customers should continue on to the next path in the sales cycle. Whereas if there is no empathetic, uh, you know, cognizance of, of, of is this customer right, then it's just ruthless move you on to the next sales, you know, next next step in the sales cycle, then close you. So this, do you think the sales process is the issue or do you think it's the fact that the people that are guiding customers through the sales process um, are not being empathetic to the actual needs of the customer. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean,
1: I I think so. I think (laughs) there are lots of lots of points in there. So, so one is, is, yeah, I don't think that sellers today are, you know, any better or worse in terms of their interactions with buyers, than they were before. And I think that's problematic, right? I think we're.
0: Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: and, and surveys such that people have done, which again, I don't believe are hugely scientific, but from Gartner and Forrester and others saying, wow, you know, buyers don't want to deal with sellers anymore. Um, and they still don't. Yeah. I don't think they ever did. Quite frankly, yeah. what yeah. they do is they want to deal with a seller who can help them achieve what they're trying to get done. Right. To help them, yeah. You know, Define the problem and, and define what's the best outcome for them and help them get that. They, a, sell, a buyer wants to talk to a seller can do that. But what this data is coming back and saying about buyers not wanting to talk to, to sellers reflects the fact that they're not getting any value from those interactions. So to me, that argues the fact that we're, we're not getting better. Uh, we're not necessarily any worse, but we're not not getting any better in that dimension. And now technology enables buyers to do more of it on their own Mm-hmm. Thus, they're saying in the absence of value from a seller, I'm going to proceed myself. And I so. so I think that that is really sort of the crux of the matter is we're not creating these buying experiences for the buyer that makes someone to invest their time and attention in us as sellers.
0: Okay. And so then it's... I was going to say to follow up on that. So then is the buying experience is the issue with the actual sales cycle or is there another component to the buying experience that we could do better?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's to your point about you know we don't focus on making the connection at the human level that we need to do. We don't focus on being intentional about how we build trust because we're so uh, animated and driven by our process, right, and meeting our, our metrics, our activity metrics, and so on, that we put sellers in a nearly impossible position. I mean, think about it, it's, it's not uncommon, let's say, in the SaaS world for uh an AE to have a requirement to have a 5X pipeline coverage in their pipeline for their number. Well, what most sellers and sales leaders don't understand is if that's the case, then your win rate, meaning the percentage of the opportunities you close out of your most qualified opportunities is going to be the reciprocal of your pipeline coverage ratio. So if you say we need 5X coverage, you're dooming sellers to just superficially deal with all their customers, right? And as a result, what we see is they close 20%. Their win rate's 20%, or, you know, 20 to 25%. It's very, very, very typical in the SaaS world. And it's like, well, that's a problem. I mean, if you're in sales, which is a performance-based profession, and if we sort of accept the adage that practice makes perfect. If you're only winning one of every five of your opportunities, what are you practicing the
0: most? Practicing, losing. I guess. You're <laughs> practicing losing. losing. You're practicing building a pipeline just so that so that you can to close lose. that twenty percent. Yeah, to lose basically. Right. You're okay with so that.
1: Why do? But everybody seems to be okay with that. It's like why? And I'm not saying okay you should
0: that? be okay with that, but yeah, that's what people are. But okay I have conversations with
1: CROs where I'm going well, what are you? What are you going to do to? You know, here's your win rate. What are you going to do to grow sales this year? We're going to put more stuff in the top of the pipeline because our process, we know it works, and it's going to produce a 20% win rate. So, well, hmm, what's the value to you of increasing your win rate 1%, 2%? What's it mean to you? I never think about it. And it's just insanity. (laughs) So we want to give people the ability to feel confident about what they're doing. Confidence comes from success. Give people the ability to succeed. Let them succeed some more. So instead of engineering our processes to generate 20% win rates, engineer your process to generate a 50% win rate. What will that look like? And I can tell you, your sellers will be more more motivated. They're not going to be experiencing as much burnout. (laughs) I mean, it's We have the ability to do this. This is probably what I'm talking about in my new book. It's like, we need to rethink because we're fundamentally doing things the same way we were doing them for decades and they're not working in better.
0: I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now, as a leader, you're always on the lookout for more ways to arm yourself with knowledge. The books, the seminars, and most importantly, the podcasts that help you make the best possible decision for you your company, your customers. Because when you know more, you can apply more and you can grow. With HubSpot CRM platform, you can store, track, manage, and report on all the tasks and activities that make up your relationships with customers. With a bird's eye view over all your customer interactions, HubSpot empowers your decision-making like never before. So you can give your business and your customers all the good you've got. Learn how to make your business grow better at HubSpot.com. Okay. So that's a great point. So you're speaking to a CRO, a CRO understands the value of increasing that 20% close rate to 50%. Like you have that conversation, the numbers make sense. So how do you actually accomplish that? What's, what's the actual strategy?
1: Well, we have to start with sort of rethinking how we enable sellers. Okay. So, you know, sort of the common way to that let's say a enablement person or a, you know, sales leader will say, "Look, we've got some shortfalls in, in our performance and our execution. How are we going to make decisions about what we train people and how we upskill our people? How we educate our people? Excuse me. And generally, what do they do? Well, they'll look at the numbers. You know, they'll see what we're doing. You know, it could be win rates, it could be you know, no decision rates. It could be whatever. Yeah, you know, we could analyze some lost deals." But the thing that doesn't ever happen is is no one ever goes back and talks to the customer and said, What's been the experience, your experience with our sellers? Where did we help or where did we hurt in terms of helping you understand what your problem is and helping you define a path forward to achieve your most important outcome, desired outcome? No one sort of starts, let's start with that perspective what the buyers need from us in order for us to help them better.
0: This is all about listening to your, this is all, it seems like, it seems like such common sense, right? It's all about just listening to the people that you're selling to.
1: Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, that's
0: like, that's the core of it though.
1: Sure. But take it to an, a, a further degree is, is, I was having a conversation a couple weeks ago with a senior sales leader that was putting together a job description for a position they were trying to hire for. And as sort of the usual, Laundry list of things, you know, we're looking for a hunter, we're looking for you know aggressive uh and then sort of the general sales description. But I said, okay, well, these things that you're saying are a requirement. Have you asked one of your customers what they need your salespeople to be? How what do they need from your sellers in order to help them move through their process and make their decision to buy from you? What do they need? Never yet. I talked to a sales leader said, yeah, we've consulted with our, our buyers about that.
0: And they want an aggressive hunter-style sales oh, yeah. rule that's going to hunt white ask, space. Ask and, a
1: buyer. You want our guys to yeah. be a hunter, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we want your guys to be, you know, that extrovert. that's really push, 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 push us.
0: No. Comfortable with rejection, you know, 40 50 cold calls a day.
1: <laughs> what they want is, yeah, I summarize it. Yeah, your buyers want curious, open-minded problem solvers. Mm-hmm
0: um what is it so the the actual title of the book um we can definitely plug it yeah yeah sell without selling out right and i want to know what that means
1: surprisingly i have one here
0: (laughs) um
1: well to sell without selling out is to me is we we all recognize sort of these conventional say what i call salesy behaviors that that make buyers cringe Mm -hmm. and uh yeah we're starting to serve catalog some of them, and I talk about it in the book. I have a little chart that compares salesy versus non-salesy. What I call it is selling out is is the salesy, right? Okay. It's, the, it's the behaviors that sort of the persuasion-driven behaviors that make buyers resist and cringe. And we know there are, are we know they do this, yet we continue to persist. Let me give an example. One example is is we talk about persuasion all the time. we get people to be better at persuasion. And this is somehow a critical sales skill. There was a book published in 2020 by Jonah Berger, a professor at Wharton School, called The Catalyst, is about persuasion. And one of the interesting things he cites in the book is research that shows that as human beings, we, to a person, universally, resist being persuaded. It's innate behavior. We resist persuasion. So it stands the reason that, of course, that we'd say, well, let's make persuasion sort of this hallmark of sales skills we want to train people in. You know, let's put them out in front of buyers, exercising some behavior that buyers universally resist. So what I argue in the book is that there's, you know, the opposite of these salesy behaviors, what I call the selling out behaviors, with what I call selling in. Which, when you think about it, is, is all these behaviors that buyers resist, that we, we know sort of the stereotypical bad sales behaviors, those are all learned behaviors. Mm-hmm. And the argument that I make in the book is that if you lean into innate human behaviors, connecting with a human being, being curious, being empathetic and understanding, uh, being generous, giving of value, that these are innate human behaviors that we're all wired to do. And if we lean into these and lead with these with our buyers, then we stand a better chance of establishing a trust-based relationship that enables us to influence the choices, trade-offs, and decisions they make. And they're open to that influence. I mean, that's one of the key points is, is that there's a decision a buyer makes when you start dealing with them where they make the decision, I call it the why you question. Why should I invest my time in you? Why should I trust you? Why should I give you my confidence? Why should I listen to you? Is, it happens in every, every interaction, every situation you are in with the buyer. And when they answer that question, what they're answering is, am I going to basically give Scott the ability to influence me? That's what they're doing. They're opening the door to your influence. So in order to do that, you have to make that connection. You got to be interested in the other person. It can't just be about pitching your product. It's about I want to understand what you really, what's really is most important to you. I'm driven by that, and so I sort of frame the, the the contrast on stark terms in the book. And I, you know, this is, I think is a disservice we do to sellers is is they're basically trained to think sellers that their job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy their product, whereas I believe seller's job is to listen to understand what's the most important thing to the buyer and then help them get that and so if you think your job is to go out and persuade somebody well it sort of stands to reason that you're gonna you're gonna be be pitch oriented right i gotta get my product out there i gotta persuade you that regardless of what your product your problem is this is the answer whereas if you think your job is to go out and to listen first to understand what's most important to that buyer, and then put together a plan to help them get that, then you're going to go down a different path. You're going to lean into your curiosity. You're going to lean into make sure you ask the sufficient number of questions that you really understand what this most important thing is and that you understand it at a level that that makes the customer feel like you've heard them and understood them and that you give generously of the value that you need to be able to provide, whether it's through insights or content or whatever form that helps the buyer make progress toward making their decision.
0: Now, I want to understand one thing when it comes to these conversations that you're having with the buyer. Of course, you still only have so many hours in a day. So it's important that if you spend the time, there still has to be some sort of performance objectives. But I'm curious, Mm -hmm. does this conversation now extend to Indeed.com slash Clary terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed properly. And the importance of measuring intent that a buyer could have so that the conversations are a little bit warmer when you get into them, when I'm getting on the phone for the first time or the Zoom call or whatever. Sure. How important is that?
1: You you want to take advantage of every bit of intelligence you can have about the buyer before you have these conversations. I mean, it's... I don't want people to get the wrong impression from earlier. It's the problem is not, is not the technology, it's how we use it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yeah, you want to take advantage of, if you have intent data, you want to factor that in. You want to make sure you've done your homework sufficiently before you have those, those first calls. Um, because I believe that you can't predict in advance, which of the interactions you have, with the buyer can have the most impact on them. So, Daniel Kahneman, Nobel Prize winning economist, psychologist, um, did some research and came up with this, this rule he called the peak end rule. And what that said was that basically, when people go through an experience, when they are coming back to make a judgment or a, a, decision, a decision about that experience, is they basically take into account two primary factors. One is the peak experience or peak event during that experience. And the last event in that experience. And if, think about that from the perspective of sales and go through the, think about the buying experience is you can't predict in advance which interaction you have with a buyer is one that they'll consider the peak event. It could be. I had one client that years ago where he, he sort of, really transformed how they responded to their inbound leads and really beefed up their inside team, brought some real product experts to help with it, where just by getting back to their prospects more quickly with people who really understood the buyer and their needs and could really help them move through their process more quickly, yeah, they doubled the revenue in almost no time. And when you surveyed the buyers, it was all about that. Right? Their experience is that first interaction was the peak event for the buyer. It wasn't anything subsequent to that. Is the fact we got back to you, got back to you quickly with somebody that really knew what they are talking about. I felt that was a great use of my time as a buyer to talk with them. Boom. So as, as a seller, you want to take advantage of everything that's available to you to say, yeah, I want to maximize the impact of each of my interactions. So I need to be very thoughtful about it. I need to be intentional about it. I just can't be robotic and sort of roll through my process. I got to treat every customer uniquely and prepare for them uniquely. And when I do that, yeah, there's going to be more value for the buyer in each of those interactions. And value, as I talk about in the book, for me, the baseline measure of value in the buyer's eyes is that as a result of an interaction with you, Scott, they're closer to making a decision after that interaction than they were before that interaction but they've made progress that's what buyers want they want to make progress if they don't see a return on the investment of their time and attention in you then they'll stop giving you time
0: and so to follow up go sort of, uh, oh, i, I sorry
1: once it, it just sort of becomes sort of the basic way that sellers have to look at every every interaction that with a buyer is what is the value I'm going to provide? What's the value the buyer needs for me in order to make progress during this interaction? And, and as a want- result of getting this value, what are they going to commit to doing as the next mm-hmm. step?
0: The reason I, I wanted to go into this is because I think it's interesting because we spoke, we touched on productivity before. Mm. And when you look at the concepts of productivity and efficiency, and then you contrast that with uniqueness and individualness, usually those run contrary. Usually, the more unique something is, the less efficient it is. And mm. that's, that's what I that's what I was curious about, because if you want to be a top performer, there has to be some velocity to what you're doing. You have to be closing bigger deals or larger deals or more deals than the next person. So mm. how do you how do you make sure that you maintain velocity, you maintain productivity, but you still maintain uniqueness? And you kind of mentioned it there. You, you did touch on it. It was every single interaction. You, you give and deliver the most possible value. And that in theory would move things along faster than even if you systematize it,
1: right? That's your baseline is does this interaction help the buyer move closer to making a decision? Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, if you don't know that in advance, if you don't know how that's going to happen in advance, then why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Why are you taking the buyer's time? Why are you taking your time? And this is something, this is the the mindset that sellers need to have when they go through every opportunity in their pipeline. Or if you're a sales manager, you're going through a, a pipeline review, this is the question you ask your sellers. What value does the buyer need from us now in order to move forward in their process? And if a seller doesn't know, then they need to go back, keep asking questions, dig deeper, make sure they really understand this, this, this understanding, I'd I say there are four main pillars in my book. There are four main pillars of selling in. Connection, curiosity, understanding, and generosity. And if you've built the connection, if you've built this level of trust, which is basically the customer giving you permission to stick your nose into their business, you know, to ask the questions, make sure you understand. Don't just default to your usual set of 10 or 12 questions that you ask, but keep digging till you've, till you really feel like you understand confirm it with the buyer as people are trained to do but then you have to go a step further this is where many sellers just stop they may say okay well i've asked these 10 questions i'm gonna you know reflect those back to the buyer and but yeah, you know, the thing is well, the buyers don't always understand completely what the opportunities are or what even the scope of their problem is so when you get a chance to reflect back to the buyer Sellers need to get in the habit of saying, okay, now what are we missing? Just when you think we understand everything, what are we missing? Mm -hmm. And that opens up the door again to dig deeper until you really feel like you, okay, I understand what's most important to a buyer. I understand what's driving the decision. Because my experience in selling very complex, large-scale deals, as well as small deals early in my career, I learned early on that there's always one thing that's driving the decision more than everything else. And that one thing is usually important to one or more people. So as a seller, as part of your discovery, which is not a one-time event, it's something you do every time you interact with the buyer as you keep asking questions and learning, is you're trying to uncover what that one thing is. What's the thing that's most important to the buyer? And who is it most important to? And so many sellers just don't have a handle on that. And so it's, you know, they start of shooting shooting craps to that point. Start of playing the odds.
0: I just want to take a second to thank the sponsor of today's episode, Swag.com. Now, you know, if you've ever received a corporate gift or swag in the past, how many of those gifts did you actually keep? Probably not many, which is probably because the stuff that you got was not so great. I've gotten a, like a lot of stuff from trade shows and from companies in the past that i've just thrown out the second i get it so this is why you need to check out swag.com i've been on the receiving end of getting garbage gifts i've also worked in companies where i only had access to a really really small inventory of stuff that i wanted to give my customers and my employees and i knew that it wasn't going to resonate i knew that it was going to suck so what is swag.com well it's like swag upgraded it's the best place to buy custom gifts and swag that people will actually want to keep so they sent me a box because obviously they're sponsoring the show and i wanted to see what it's all about I, you know i've worked in businesses i want to make sure that the quality of their stuff actually was up to my standards because i can tell you right now that when i get garbage it goes right into the trash it like it really goes right into the trash the second i go back from the trade show or the conference or whatever so i received one of the custom swag boxes from swag.com. I loved the unique packaging, so it was a beautiful unboxing experience. Uh, I love the actual products they sent me, and there's a whole bunch more that obviously they didn't send me, but the stuff that they did send was absolutely beautiful. It was very high quality, and I can only imagine that if I actually got this when I was working for companies, I probably would have actually used it. And to be honest, I'm going to start using them for people that work on my show and in my company as well because I know that this isn't just uh, – a novelty gift that somebody's going to throw out. It's stuff that they can actually use. They have so many unique and customizable gifts that I've never seen anywhere else. They have custom yoga mats, they have custom Apple AirPods, they even have branded kayaks, which I did not know was a thing. So they carry all these premium brands like North Face, Yeti, Nike, and more. And it's all customizable with your company's logo or artwork. Uh, With Swag.com, they take care of all of your swag at their warehouse and they ship it to individual addresses. Or if you prefer, uh, you can just send it to a bulk location in one single shipment. It's easy to manage uh, from their online portal, which you obviously get access to. So if this is something that you think would benefit you, if you have clients or customers, or a team, and you want to go the extra mile and you actually want to give gifts that people appreciate, which is the whole point of giving these gifts in the first place, go to swag.com for the perfect swag and custom gifts. Right now, they're giving everybody who's a Success Story podcast listener a special offer. It's 10% off your entire order. But only when you go to swag.com slash success and enter promo code success10. Remember, for 10% off, Go to swag.com/slash success and use promo code success10. If if you were going to hope that a seller or a sales manager or an entrepreneur or whoever reads this book Mm -hmm. um, takes one thing away from the book, what is what is the main thing that you want that person to take away? Do you want them to, for example, a seller go to a new organization? Or is it like, this is the environment that you should aim to create in your organization, in your company? I guess I want to look at it from different perspectives yeah. of somebody reading this book, and they sure. already have a job, or they already manage a team.
1: Right? Well, I think from, a, from an individual contributor standpoint, this could be for an entrepreneur, too, who's you know, driving sales in their organization, um, is to understand what your job is, this is the big takeaway, your job is not to persuade somebody to buy your product, your job is to listen to them, to understand what's the most important thing to them, and then help them get that. That's your job. And the way to do that is not through these overly prescriptive, persuasion-based tactics, but through leaning into the your innate human side to connect with someone at the human level, to use your curiosity to, to navigate through yeah, you know, their problem, their situation, make sure you understand what's most important to them, how you can help them get that, and then provide them the value they need in order to help them make that decision. And it's it's much more collaborative. You think about selling not as something you do to something, to someone, but something you do with someone. And so and I, for individual I, contributors, that yeah. mindset to me is is life altering for them they're gonna have a choice you know every time they have an opportunity to, to take a specific action to say yeah do i want to be salesy do to sell out or don't lean into human side and sell in yeah you know, for a manager it's it's a cultural thing it is because as more and more sellers embrace this way of selling you're gonna get a little bit of pushback they're gonna say yeah <laughs> you know this this overly prescriptive robotic process you want me to follow that just doesn't work for me. And I think I can do better if I'm getting the opportunity to experiment and come up with a a way of selling that's aligned with who I am, my character, my values, my strengths. And as a leader, you should want to encourage that. You should want people not to be cookie cutters, uh, clones of each other, but you want people that are motivated to become the best version of themselves. And to do that, you need to give them some autonomy. And, and this is this is you know, I cite this research in the book but uh, a professor at Harvard Business School Francesca Gino has written about this is the power of giving people agency over the choices they make about how they sell then they own it right it's not imposing a process on somebody is they they own have ownership in this they're gonna be more motivated to want to be on top and stay on top and so it's going to require a little bit of a shift of mindset and manager as well. A little bit, I don't say it, it's, you know, it's not old school, but it's, it's understand that your, your sellers are sort of like your buyers. As a manager, you want to understand what's most important to your individual sellers and then say, how can I help you get that? That's my job. What do you aspire to Scott? How can I help you get that? It's not, how can I make you make 50 calls? Maybe, maybe Scott only needs to make 20 calls. And that's okay. If Scott's delivering, that's fine. But there's this real sense of fear among many sales managers that if people deviate from the process, it's like, <gasps> I can't have that. That's unpredictable. And it's like, well, that's fine. You're going to get better performance. Deal with it. Deal with people as individuals.
0: And then... That's an interesting point. Um, I want to I want to ask some some rapid fire questions at the end. But before sure. before we go into that, there's one point that I thought would be very interesting for somebody who is a sales manager who's listening to that, who said, OK, I'll, I'll try and deviate from process that I've done for the past 20 years. But what if somebody isn't performing? What if it's not working? How do I measure what's not working if I don't understand the process anymore? So what are you judging people on?
1: Right? I mean, yeah. is, is everybody, see, everybody has their own number. Yeah. Right? Everybody, everybody has their own set of metrics. It's always been the case. Yeah. You know, frustrates, you no end to talk to sellers. i will say, well, what's your win rate? I don't know. What are your conversion rates it's at your stages? No, no. What's like, you don't have to be driven by the numbers, but we all have numbers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So when I talk about experimentation and improving, become the best version of yourself, it's within the scope of what your numbers are. Yeah, I said I sold by and large really large deals, you know, seven figure, eight figure, even nine-figure deals. I knew what my my numbers were, I knew what my win rate was, and and I I wanted to maintain those. Mine was different than the guy next to me. And he was good too. Mm-hmm. Um but he was he did it differently. And that's fine. You can accommodate that. This is this I don't understand why managers think that they don't have time to accommodate. You know, it's like you've got nothing but time. If you're a frontline manager, your only job is to help your people succeed and not succeed by doing it necessarily your way, but helping them learn how to become the best version of themselves. And if that's slightly at odds, so what? As long as people are willing to be held accountable for results. that's the bargain I always made with bosses throughout my career It's like, yeah, I may do things a little bit differently, but I'm willing to be held accountable for my results. And I delivered because I, I felt I had ownership in how I was selling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I felt like it was, you know, my business, right? When I got started in sales, it's very common. You're taught by your manager. You're the CEO of your patch, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's geography or, You don't hear that as much anymore. And we need to enable sellers more and more to think about that as, you know, you are the CEO of that small little business. What are you going to do to make it happen? Because failure is not an option.
0: And the last thing that I noticed... It was very interesting. The four pillars that you mentioned, connection, curiosity, understanding, generosity. None of those are focused on on business objectives. None of those are focused on internal business metrics that will drive Mm -hmm. success. These are all focused on the customer.
1: Yeah. Shocking, huh?
0: (laughs) No, it's very good um okay most importantly if people want to uh connect with you get the book where should they go all the socials uh and the dates and all that
1: sure so uh, you can pre-order the book well depending when this airs uh we'll say you can order the book uh your favorite online bookseller and the book is launching february 22nd uh we'll have a little bit of a launch event if people want to participate in that um book is called sell without selling out a guide to success on your own terms and if you want to follow me uh yeah i dabble on linkedin a bit um <laughs> scott's laughing <laughs> yeah he's sort of like me we're there all the time um got a podcast sales enablement with andy paul uh gosh we're up to a thousand plus episodes and encourage people to check that out
0: amazing okay and we'll you can visit my website
1: th- andypaul.com
0: that's that's where you get everything else if you yes. want to if you want to find anything go there okay um let's do a couple rapid fire sure. uh biggest challenge that you've overcome in your personal or professional life? What was that? How did you overcome it?
1: Hmm. Gosh. Um. <laughs> Which one?
0: <laughs> pick, pick one, pick one. <laughs> one that one that comes to the first one that comes to mind.
1: <laughs> well, I th- yeah, I mean, I think the hardest thing in you know, personal life was just, you know, a divorce. I mean, that, that,
0: uh, it impacts everything,
1: impacts everything you do. And, uh, you know, my first marriage was, you know, these things don't happen overnight. They evolved and yeah, I just look back and think, yeah, there was a period of time there where I was, I thought I was operating at peak performance, but I really wasn't in retrospect mm-hmm. and and also people could see. So, oh yeah. So resolving all that and, um, Coming out the other end, a divorce, great co-parenting uh, between the two of us, a great relationship. Yeah, I think that's that's non-business, but it's it's uh, something I was proud of. Yeah, good, good.
0: Um, if you had to choose one person, who's obviously been many people, but one person who has had a huge impact on your life, who was that, and what did they teach you? Well,
1: I really think <laughs> it's uh, my wife. Uh, second wife um somebody we had known each other forever reconnected after 30 years one of those stories um but she's supported me down this journey that i've taken the last eight nine years of yeah exploring writing books and the podcast and and everything else i've done with the business that was just sort of a a right turn and um yeah would not have been possible without her support
0: um, a book podcast something you'd recommend people go check out
1: uh, Other than my own <laughs> other yeah. than your
0: other than your own yes <laughs> <than my> own.
1: <laughs> Well you know I think there's a couple books I'd recommend One is um, a moment to think. I believe it's titled by Juliet Funt it talks about the importance of building white space or thinking time into your day um, And even for busy people I think hugely important. Um yeah, you know, love atomic habits by James Clear. I think it's something I refer to in, in my book. Um yeah, I think that's a guide that people should pick up and, and take very seriously because he writes very well about, about habit formation. And what's the other part of that question?
0: Oh no, just you, you okay, got two of it okay. already. You're good. Yeah. You're good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you can list off more if you want, but no, no, you're good, you're good. Um if you could tell your twenty year old self one thing, what would it be?
1: get a degree in engineering
0: <laughs> it's not a bad it's not a bad uh, tip. <laughs> um, oh very good and then last last question what does success mean to you
1: control over my life my time that's for me is is yeah, I've been extremely fortunate in my career I mean I've worked hard and and uh, but yeah for me it was always about having control over my life and, and uh, when I started my own company. I started my company cause I, I wanted to take a step back. Actually, you know, I've been traveling extensively for 15 years internationally and was missing a lot of things in my kid's life and, and lives. And, and so, you know, made the choice to sort of step back a bit. You know, I was fortunate I had the ability to be able to do that. I mean, I still was working and building my business, but at a much different pace. Um, so for me, that's, yeah, that's what success has been about is, is control.
0: I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know.